And so what I would like to do is open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be here very briefly and then springboard to another chapter within Acts that I think is going to gain, help us gain some perspective. <clears throat> but in the book of Acts, so it's a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Uh, he says out in first verse, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And so the implication here is that now the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach through his body, the church, and through the giving of his Holy Spirit. And so it's a continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so when you read Acts, it should be Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of King Jesus, really, through his people. And it's interesting, too, that a big theme or kind of an overarching understanding theme of the book of Acts should really be the kingdom of God. It's only mentioned a couple of times, but the places in which it is mentioned help us understand that this is an overarching theme and everything else that we read about in the book of Acts is, is, should be read in understanding the theme of the kingdom of God. So look with me really quick in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So in his six weeks that he spends after his resurrection, before he ascends, all of his teaching with them can be described under the heading teaching them about the kingdom of God. What is, what is life like in this kingdom under the rule and reign of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Now notice if you flip all the way to the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Paul is in Rome. He's in prison there. And in the very last couple of verses, it says in verse 30 and verse 31, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so here you have, at the beginning, there's this idea that all of Jesus' teaching with his apostles is described as teaching about the kingdom of God. And at the very end, Paul's teaching in Rome at the end of his life is described as teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is what you would call in kind of a literary or in a theological sense, an inclusio, right? It's a verbal way of bracketing a main idea. And so you have the idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God and everything in between this thing called an inclusio says that everything else understood and read between these two brackets needs to be understood in the light of this bracket, this idea. And so the book of Acts, or, the, or the, the Acts of the Apostles or the Holy Spirit, teaches us about what is life like and what's the expectation that we should have as citizens of this very kingdom. What is life going to be like? And so what we see, see play out here, when we jump down in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you begin to see, based on this teaching that the apostles have received from Jesus, he gives them kind of one last kind of push. And in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay, so starting where they currently reside in Jerusalem, 
the gospel is going to go forward. And this actually becomes an outline verse for the rest of the book of Acts. You see the gospel begin here in Jerusalem. It then spreads to Judea, to Samaria, and then eventually arrives in Rome, which is considered kind of the, the stretches to the end of the earth of that time. And so not only is this something that Jesus is saying you will do, but he actually fulfills what he says he's going to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the very next chapter, they receive the Holy Spirit. God endorses this gathering of misfits. And he then empowers them and sends them out. And they do exactly what he talks about. But it starts in Jerusalem. And there's, there's some interesting things to notice about it starting in Jerusalem. Why? And this is an actual question, not a rhetorical question. So this is where you participate. Why is it problematic or a challenge for the gospel to start in Jerusalem, do you think? Like, why would it be problematic maybe from a, an earthly point of view or for a, from a human perspective? Okay, so maybe the, the, the motives behind what they're doing is some sort of cultural or political motive. Okay. What else? Okay, so it was heretical, and so that's going to bring some negative attention. It's also risky if it's not true, right? If this, thing, if this whole thing is a sham, and it's not actually true, well, then it's very easy to disprove, because he did not make it a private encounter. That's the interesting thing. When you consider Christianity and how it, is, how it starts and then perpetuates, it's different than every other worldview there is. Every other religion begins with some private encounter, private dream, or private experience that is then by one person shared with other people about their private experience or encounter. Christianity starts with a very public event with uh, after he, he ascends, he's now publicly out there appearing to over 500 at one time. His location of his burial is known by a prominent figure, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. And so you have this kind of very affirming thing. But starting in Jerusalem, and it would probably be the same challenge that we have today. Why is it challenging for us? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you send me on a mission trip to some other where they don't speak my language, and I'm as bold as I'll get out. I'm, I'm Paul at that point. I'll tell everybody I see. Then you put me back here in Georgetown and I get a little timid. Why has that happened to me? You, those are my neighbors. Why is that an issue? I see them all the time. And why is that an issue? I, you're exactly on the right track. Anybody else experience this? Like you're super bold when you go somewhere else and then you come home and you're like, okay. Why? It could be more damage to you locally. And what do you mean by damage? I think you're spot on. It could cost you socially. Cost what you've built. A reputation or an image that you've established and that you're maintaining for others to see. It's risky. It can cost you. And that's, I, I don't think we, we should look at the book of Acts and say, well, that's not something they struggled with. I think that that was very real for them as well. And it was even more costly and more risky for them. 
So turn over with me to chapter 7. This is not a traditional missions passage that you would have someone teach on. But I think in light of what we're talking about, when we talk about missions specifically in our home context, I think that this example of Stephen is incredibly potent. And so if you guys are familiar with this story, we won't read the whole thing. I'm going to kind of skim through Acts chapter 7 and highlight a few things that I think are worthy of our attention this morning. But you have Stephen comes about uh, in chapter 6 because there's starting to be complaints. This is in the church in, in Jerusalem. The church is now growing, okay? It grows from 12 to probably roughly 120. So it's, it's grown uh, 10 times, and they're now having issues with being able to take care of and shepherd all of these believers that are now there. And so they're, they decide to set aside a few men that they're going to uh, task with helping to care for these, uh, these women, specifically. And so they set aside, and, and a part of that group is Stephen, who's described as very faithful and full of the Holy Spirit. And so he is, he is beginning to start to teach and to bear witness, fulfilling what Christ had said, you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem. Stephen is embodying that very thing. That's where he is, and that's where he immediately starts to share. And he does so with such power, right? It said, that you will receive power, that's what Jesus said, and then you will be my witnesses. He, has, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as he's doing that, he's making some people angry. He's making the establishment angry, primarily. But it's not just uh, Jews specifically, but it's uh, Jewish people, not just from Jerusalem, but from the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, Cilicia, Asia. So you have Jews from all over, from the nations, to a certain extent, gathered here. And they're getting angry. And they start to make accusations. Do you guys recall what those accusations are? It says it there that he's being accused of blasphemy. He's speaking blasphemous things about God and about the law of Moses. Does that sound familiar? Who else was accused of those things? The Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? Yes. So, he, charges are brought against him, and he's now before the high priest and the council, and they ask him to kind of speak to these accusations. And so what's fascinating here is what Stephen does, in, starting in verse 7, he approaches them, and he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. So he first of all identifies that those are his people. Those are his, as we, as we say in Texas, kinfolk, right? These are his people, and he's addressing his people, his brothers, his fathers, the people that, that he is connected to. And then he begins to give this history lesson, which is fascinating. He starts with Abraham, and then he ends up going through Isaac, Jacob, and then he talks about the patriarchs, right? Jacob's 12 sons, which include none other than Joseph. And he spends some time talking about Joseph. If you look at, at chapter uh, 7, verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. And so again, it identifies these patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, became jealous of Joseph. 
and sold him into slavery. And we, we all know the story of Joseph as he goes into slavery. He works his way up in Potiphar's house. He's then falsely accused of sexual assault in Potiphar's house. And then he's imprisoned. And then he works his way into the jail. He, he reads dreams because God is with him. And he's able to then work his way to where he's eventually the prime minister of Egypt. And God uses that whole trajectory eventually to deliver Joseph's brothers, his kinfolk, his father and his brothers and his people. And so then he transitions. Stephen is still there and he's giving this history lesson to the experts, which is interesting too, right? The, the Jewish priests, the high priest and the other members of the, of the council would have been perfect experts on all of this history. But Stephen is still feels compelled to share this with them. So he transitions from Joseph and then he jumps directly to Moses. And you see this in verse 20. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up three months in his father's house and he proceeds to tell the story of Moses. Being brought up in Pharaoh's household has all of the education and training at his disposal but eventually is compelled to meet with his brothers, his kinfolk. So he goes back to his people and in an effort to try to help them, he ends up killing an Egyptian guard and then tries to bring peace between two disputing Jews at the time and they eventually reject him. And it says, he supposed in verse 25 that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. They end up rejecting him and accusing him of murder and saying, what, are you going to kill us too? And so then he realizes he has to flee, and he flees. And it's interesting what Stephen does with this. He continues and talks about this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And then he continues to tell the story of Israel. And finally, he confronts them in verse 51. And this is interesting. Very bold, right? He's on trial. He's, he's having to fight for his life. But he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who have received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he basically condemns them when he's the one on trial having to fight to not be condemned. And he articulates two main stories, Joseph and Moses. And I think if we step back and we ask, okay, out of all the characters in the Old Testament, all the characters in the, the storyline of the Jews, why do you think Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, decides to camp out on two guys, Joseph and Moses? And he eventually connects their storyline, their narrative, to that of Jesus. Just like you rejected them, you also rejected the righteous one, whom you've also had murdered. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Why are they so upset? Well, I guess a question we have to ask is, what do Joseph, Moses, and Jesus have in common? Especially in the way that their stories are portrayed here by Stephen. 
Any thoughts? What do Joseph, Moses, and Jesus have in common? Okay, living by faith, following the commands of God. Say again. So they all have this narrative or this element of being the redeemer God has sent. Okay, so they saved their people. They were rejected, cast out by whom? Their own people. And a third element. So not only are they sent to save their people, they're rejected by the very people they're sent to save. And God uses not in spite of, but specifically through the rejection of their people to bring about that salvation. Not in spite of, but through. That that's the means through which God is going to accomplish salvation. For Joseph, for Moses, and Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. And the interesting thing is, we could sit here and we could look back and go, wow, what a, what a cool way to connect the dots on that. What a neat narrative. That's really kind of, man, didn't see that before. But then if you keep looking at this thing, verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears. They rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this very pattern we identify. called that are, These individuals are a part of a people. They're sent to save that people. They're rejected by that people. And it's through the rejection that salvation eventually comes, Stephen embodies that exact same pattern. He starts out saying, brothers and fathers, hear me. These are his people. These are his brothers, his elders, his neighbors. This is his hometown. These are his people. And it's them that he is called to immediately. And so he's faithful to respond to that call. And he starts to tell them, and they reject him. And ultimately, it's through their rejection of him that they will come to know Christ. That he is willing to lay down his life on their behalf. And then you see something fascinating. They lay his garments at the foot of a young man named Saul, who later is named Paul. Paul takes the same exact pattern of living, called to a certain people group. Peter eventually takes the same pattern of living, called to a certain people group, lives for them, rejected by them, and ultimately through their death, the news perpetuates. This good news of King Jesus. This is not a pattern that's just kind of this cool historic pattern. But when you step back from the book of Acts, what Stephen has allowed us to do is see that there's this kind of grand narrative and there's this pattern of people that are called by God, that are following him, are going to live a certain way. This is life in the kingdom. Remember, the book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. And you see this lifestyle of those that are actually a part of that kingdom. It has to do with suffering and gospel proclamation. 
And the suffering is usually because of gospel proclamation, not just for suffering's sake. And earlier we talked about why is it so challenging in our locale, our hometown, our Jerusalem, if you will. Why is it so difficult for us? Well, because it's costly. It, it could, it's risky. We can go overseas and share the gospel and it doesn't really cost us anything. That's kind of why we're there. But when we come home, I think we lose sight of our identity. I think we lose sight of whose kingdom we're building. And we sometimes have to maintain this, this, our own imagery, our own identity, seeking our own significance and our own security. But what you see is a pattern here that those that have encountered the risen Christ are radically transformed. They never recover from that, that encounter with Christ. And they now live radically for him at the cost of their own social well-being. Sometimes their own career. And, I'm, and I don't think we should look at this and go, okay, well, I guess I need to go commit social suicide tomorrow. Sign me up. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's a perspective and a motive shift. It's this perspective of, are we in this walk with Jesus, as we follow Jesus, is it about our comfort and what he can provide? If so, I think we misunderstand what life is like in this upside-down kingdom. Because it's not about us or our comfort. This is a very brief span of life that we've been given. And so we have, we have an opportunity and we've been sovereignly placed in Georgetown, or in Liberty Hill, or wherever we find ourselves, we're sovereignly placed here for a reason. We're put in our neighborhood for a reason. We're put in our occupation. God wired you with certain desires and aptitudes that have launched you into a certain career field or a certain lifestyle, and you did not do that. You're not responsible for your own aptitude. You're responsible with what you do with it, but realize God's the one that designed you. And he has placed you and, and given you opportunities to interact with people for a reason. And so it's this idea of mission starting at home. It's how do we leverage our every day for the sake of the gospel. When we go to the grocery store, when we go to the office, the neighborhood in, in which we live, how do we leverage and live in a way that's others focused Praying and seeking opportunities to invest in them, to, to befriend these people, and to live for them. And that's going to cost us a certain kind of death. That means we no longer get to be primary in our daily activity. There is a death, a self-sacrifice. That attitude is something that then permeates our lifestyle. And we go, I'm willing to sacrifice my own wishes, wants, and desires, my own comforts for the sake of someone else's life. I think that's what it looks like in our context. I think that as we look at this example of Stephen, we see this pattern of suffering and gospel proclamation emerge not just from the Old Testament and not just in the book of Acts, but we see this group of 12 grow to 120. And by within one generation, 
it's grown 400 times the amount of the original population of Jesus followers in one generation. Specifically because there is a people group that are so transformed that their identity is secure and their mission is clear. Live for other people. Tell people about Jesus. Because he's the only hope. And so, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you guys about today is a tool and a way that you can begin to engage in conversation with folks. This is the same thing I'm going to tell your kids on Wednesday night. And I'm going to try to give them this tool. We have this. Uh, we have a, I think there's a box of them back there. They should be on the table. They're free. Grab one and take it with you. Because um, what I, I'm going to go through what this basically talks about. But it's how to talk about the gospel and introduce this idea of a conversation about Jesus just using kind of normal everyday occurrences and how to springboard that into a conversation. It's called Three Circles. There's also an app if you're really big on that. There's an app that can just you can use as a tool. But I'm going to just talk you through how I've found it helpful to talk about this with other people. And so when you have conversations with people, has it ever occurred where they complain about something? How often when you're talking with somebody at work or in the neighborhood, the grocery store, does anyone ever complain? Has that ever been your experience? Most of the time, right? Most of the time people like to kind of, that, that's a, an easy segue. And so there's this idea that there is a lot to complain about. About people, about relationships, about the scenario in, in politics or local or national politics or sports teams. If you're a Cowboys fan, I think maybe there's a lot there um, you can work with. I'm not a Cowboys fan, and in my world as a Broncos fan, there's a lot to work with as well. Um, but there's this idea that things aren't the way that we would ultimately want them to be, right? And so as I talk with people, there's this idea of brokenness. This is a huge marker. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to try to make this legible. Right, we would all identify that there's this, this level of brokenness out there in the world and we experience it all the time. Whether it's through people that irritate us at work, uh, we can talk about our health issues and, and things that are happening there. And so we would all recognize and, and understand that there's this kind of level of brokenness in the world that people love to talk about. And so in a conversation, it's easy to listen and to engage and let people kind of vent about brokenness or frustration that they have in their world. But then we also, in our experience, have this understanding that we see beauty, and we do see goodness, and we see evidence of design, and we see things that, that aren't necessarily all bad. And so when I talk with people and I say, I totally agree, I understand, and I can relate to this idea of just things kind of sometimes being rotten, being broken, being not as we would like them to be, or even not as they should be. And, and I ask, have you ever kind of considered why it is this way? And is there this, this kind of urge to, to think that it could be a better way? And so I asked them if, if they'd be willing to let me share with them that it hasn't always been like this. But that there, originally there was God's design that we see and that as much as we, in our brokenness, 
experience life in brokenness, we understand that things aren't as they ought to be and they're not ultimately what they could be because there is, has been this God's design in things that he has created it for a perfect and beautiful and life-giving pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. And we have this urge that that's something we want. But there's something that's happened that makes this less and less experienced. And this thing that drives this wedge between God's design of things and the way things actually are in this broken world. And the Bible just calls this thing sin. Others may think of it as rebellion or missing the mark. But this is when we have departed and said, I don't necessarily want God's way. Instead of reconciling with my sister because she stole this from me, I'm going to pursue and I'm going to make it even and I'm going to steal something from her. Or we, we just have this natural impulse, this urge to do things our way instead of the way that God has designed it, life to flourish. And so we experience sin and sin leads to this brokenness. And in our attempts to fix this brokenness, what we have are these kind of awkward, jaded, unfulfilling attempts to get out of our own brokenness and to fix it. But what we find is every time we try to fix our own brokenness, it just turns out to be more broken. And it oftentimes can, can lead to even more situations of fracture in relationships and in life. But God's, in his design, he didn't look on our brokenness and just leave us at, at that. He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to leave you to it. But he actually sent us some really good news. And the Bible calls this gospel or good news. And it has to do with the person and work of Jesus. And so we have this good news. And the idea is that Jesus came down. This Jesus is in fact God. He comes down into this mess, into this brokenness. And he takes on this brokenness himself. And he takes it, all of it. He takes it all on himself. And he absorbs the penalty and he bridges the gap that's created by sin that causes a broken world. And he takes it on himself. But he didn't just stay dead. Because when he comes down at around age 33, people that he loves, that he came to save decide to reject him. They take him outside of town in Jerusalem on a hill and they nail him to a cross and watch him bleed out. They pound thorns into his skull and he ultimately breathes his last. But it's not as though they've taken his life. He has given it. He decided to give his life on behalf of us. And he didn't stay there, but three days later, the Bible tells us that he rose again. And he didn't just r r rise in secret, but he rose very publicly. And he shared that with hundreds and hundreds of people for a month and a half. And then he ascended. And it's one of the things that, that when we get tired of our brokenness, all that we have to do is turn and follow. We recognize our brokenness and we go, that's not healthy, that's not life, and that's not what I ultimately want. And we turn to him because he ultimately is what we want, and he, he does have the life in which we would like to live. And so we recognize that. We turn to him and we say, I need help out of my brokenness. I can't fix this. I can't fix these relationships that are broken. I can't fix my own impulses and urges that are keeping me from this fulfilled life that 
that I want to live. And so we recognize that if I turn from this brokenness to him and I begin to follow him, something happens. It's not just me trying to imitate him, but there is this empowerment where slowly but surely my desires begin to shift. My love for flesh, the world, and for sin and for dominance and my, my own kind of identity building, all of a sudden that love becomes displaced by a love for the things that, that the Lord loves and wanting the things that he wants. And so it's turning to follow him and then ultimately he provides us a way of recovery and pursuit. Because he sends his very own spirit to dwell within us and he empowers us and his spirit walks with us and it convicts us when we start to step off the path. It's a bumper and he has given us his spirit and his spirit kind of keeps us in check as we follow him and we are empowered to recover and to pursue him. But it's not just that he's called us to grow, but he's also called us to go back into a broken world and tell others how we were in brokenness and how we know the way out of brokenness. And it's not a system, it's not a process, it's a person. It's God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Does that make sense? But you're called to do that at, at home not just on a mission trip away from here. But we ultimately, and this is something that Brett and I have talked about quite a bit, our desire is that every one of your houses becomes an outpost for the gospel in Georgetown. People don't need to come to this building in order to, to become a Christian. They would be much better served if it was in your living room, at your dining room table, because they know and trust you. I've never met all your friends. Maybe some of them I've met. Brett doesn't know your friends or your people, but you do. They're your people. They're your family members. They're your neighbors. And you're called to them first and foremost. Mission begins there on your street, in your household, as you disciple your kids. And so I encourage you to take one of these booklets it will kind of overview that. That seems like a lot of scribblings. And you're like, yeah, Chad, that's your job. No, it's yours too. I just get paid for it. But you're all called to this. We're all called to articulate and communicate the gospel. And if this is intimidating, just talk about your own experience. Talk about your own trajectory and your own life and brokenness and your many attempts to fix it to where you realized, I got nothing. I need help. I can't fix this. And that's when you looked outside of yourself and realized, I got to give it to him. I've got to submit. Any thoughts or questions about that? You're a very quiet group. Very polite. Thank you. I got to jump over to uh, the worship and um, do a commissioning with one of our missionaries. So I'll see you guys over there. Thank you so much for your time. I release you to your small groups. Okay. There are some questions in the app today, so you feel free to follow those if you need to. You've got about uh, 15, 20 minutes.